0: Over Our Heads, a podcast produced by Pecan Street, Inc. in Austin, Texas. I'm Colin Rowan, the Director of Communication for Pecan Street.
1: And I'm Rachel Jenkins, Pecan Street's Director of Operations.
0: If you're not familiar with us, we're a research organization focused on measuring, testing, and inventing energy use and technology.
1: And providing that research to companies, university researchers, and others who are developing low-carbon products and services. On this podcast, we will introduce you to several of the topics we work on and experts we meet and dive into some energy and tech issues that are a little wonkier or complicated than what you'll find in most press coverage about clean energy.
0: We're kicking things off with a great interview with Commissioner Neil Chatterjee of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, as it's known by Energy Walks. Uh, We gave the commissioner a tour of Pecan Street's Austin lab a few weeks ago. And he sat down afterward with our chief technology officer, Scott Hinson, to talk about how he and his fellow commissioners approach their job and how research like what we do at Pecan Street fits into that.
1: If you're a policy wonk, you're going to love it. In addition to some broad topics, they dive into some FERC orders that will really push forward the clean energy industry.
0: In upcoming episodes, we're going to touch on some of Pecan Street's research on big data on artificial intelligence and other clean energy data and climate issues.
1: And just a few words about our format. Most of our interviews will be conducted by Scott Henson, our Chief Technology Officer at Pecan Street. Colin and I will set things up for Scott, and then he'll take it away.
0: And Rachel and I will also execute the shameless plugs for Pecan Street, like this one.
1: Thank you. Did you know that you can visit pecanstreet.org slash news for our latest blogs and announcements or pecanstreet.org slash events for our upcoming webinars and events?
0: Both are true statements. And you can sign up for newsletters, download our reports, and learn about what we do and why we do it. Uh, anything else, Rachel?
1: I think that's everything. If y'all like what you hear, please rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or visit PecanStreet.org slash podcasts for a full list of episodes.
0: We're glad you're here and we hope you enjoy it.
2: Hi, this is Scott Hinson, and I cannot tell you, cannot describe how excited I am today to be talking to the Commissioner of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, Welcome, Commissioner. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Well, we have just completed a tour of our uh, heavy industrial facility. (laughs) <laughs> all, all 2800 square feet of it. Um, and, and what excited you about what you saw today?
3: Well, uh, I've actually really enjoyed uh, touring the facility and the discussion we've had today, because I'm a big believer in technology and innovation. And I think that innovation really leads to uh, advancements for consumers, the economy and the environment. And the work you all are doing here is really cutting edge the types of uh, of research and the sophisticated analysis uh really charting the energy transition uh and i'm excited to see the intersection of public policy and this type of sophisticated analysis uh, i want to learn about the energy transition about what's really taking place in communities, in the marketplace. But I also am keenly aware that public policy drives a lot of this. And it's just very helpful for me to learn from folks such as yourself about the work you're doing. And uh, to be totally honest, it's also kind of fun. <laughs>
2: well, well, we have fun. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm glad that, that we get to show that off to folks. Like, like uh, since the um, since uh, since we're recording this in the middle of a, a global pandemic, which is you know the first global pandemic of my lifetime, um, it's it's been harder to sort of have these 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 meetings where we get to show this stuff off. Like we're relying on all these sort of new um, new technologies and things like that, the Zoom meetings, and I, I've never had so many Zoom meetings in my entire life. So it's it's great to, to to physically have you here in a social distance setting today, so that we can sort of show this stuff off.
3: Yeah, I'd like the record to reflect that we are currently recording this in the garage with (laughs) masks on, at least twelve feet away from each other, with fresh air, with fresh fresh air. air. We've
2: done all the all the things that we can. Um, So, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, the data that we collect, um, and and I know that you're you're you you are interested in some of the things that we can learn. Do you have visibility into data that isn't being collected that you know of, that you'd want more information around? Or is this, this, you know, where where are you seeing gaps of of knowledge right now?
3: So uh, I want to be very careful and deliberative here that, you know, I'm agnostic as to the types of analysis and research that you guys are doing. What I want is as much granular visibility as possible to better inform the decisions that we at the commission have to make regarding these complex challenges around the energy transition. Ultimately, at the end of the day, my colleagues and I don't make decisions about what is the most just and reasonable we determine whether filings that come to the commission whether or not they are just and reasonable, and so uh, that's where my focus is. Any sort of analysis, data gathering, analytics that you all and your peers throughout the industry can provide is of great benefit. But I don't come into my work, you know, kind of wanting to put a thumb on the scale one way or the other as to what types of analysis I would like to see. I prefer the other way. I think the markets, communities, uh, consumers uh, in learning from their behavioral patterns that can inform our decision-making. I would rather have it come to us in that manner than try to uh, predetermine what type of analysis I would like to see.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. So when, when, um, I saw all of the, the, the news articles around, um, order 2222. Um, it was, I mean, there's, it was a news cycle, right? There's a flurry of all this stuff. And then when I read, um, sort of some of the summary pieces and, and, um, the order itself, um, there was a, um, the, you know, my, my my reaction, especially when I finished the order itself, was I don't necessarily understand the full reason for all the big deal around it, right? Like, it made sense to me. What was the driving force for 2222 to happen now?
3: Uh Outstanding question. Um, and it's actually something that was years in the making. Uh, initially, when I first came to the commission, we had an existing process in place that combined both removing barriers to entry for battery storage technology, as well as aggregated distributed energy resources. And what I came to recognize upon first coming to the commission, which was not clearly visible to me prior to my uh, confirmation to the commission, is that we were a lot further along on battery storage technology than we were on removing barriers to DERs. There were just a lot of complex legal, jurisdictional, and quite frankly, engineering questions around some of the the behind-the-meter challenges we would have in moving forward with the DER rulemaking. So I made the difficult decision at the time to sever the two proceedings, move forward with what led to FERC Order 841, which in... Early 2018, we finalized to remove uh, these barriers to enable battery storage technologies to be compensated for all of their attributes in capacity, in energy, in ancillary services. And uh, while we continued to work through some of the legal and jurisdictional challenges to DERs, we also worked through the compliance and implementation process for storage and. That better informed our work. We got to see the different opportunities and challenges in different regions. And we also got a side benefit in that there were a number of legal challenges to FERC Order 841.
2: I remember that? There was some paperwork flying around.
3: There was some paperwork <laughs> flying around. And ultimately, it we went all the way to the D.C. Circuit. And this past summer, the D.C. Circuit uh, affirmed the approach that we took in 841 and that really strengthened the foundation of what became 2222, And so uh, the timing of it really centered around making sure we got it right. Mm-hmm. But to your point as well, you asked a question or you made a comment that, you know, uh, this seems like common sense. It, it, it shouldn't have been a big deal. That's also indicative of how much the landscape has shifted in the energy space. When 841 came about, as we just discussed, it was vigorously challenged. Two years later, you're seeing lawmakers, policymakers of all political stripes in Washington and the state capitals around the country advocating policies to support battery storage. There's a clear recognition on the part of energy industry players that there's real value and opportunity with battery storage. I think that has led to a more openness and willingness uh, to also kick the tires and consider the the, the opportunities around DERs and, and what it could mean and how transformational uh, DERs could be to our energy landscape, to squeezing carbon out of the power sector and potentially even out of the transportation sector in a market-driven way. And so I'm excited about the possibilities, but I'm also cognizant that there's a lot more work to do. Uh, Compliance filings from the various regions are due to the commission in July. And so I believe the commission will spend uh, a lot of time in 2021 and uh, most likely in 2022 as well, going through these complex filings that come up. I have no doubt there will be different opportunities and challenges, logistical hurdles, and, you know, potential possibilities in different regions. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach, But it's exciting uh, and it's important. And one of the reasons I think it was critical for me to, to connect with stakeholders such as yourselves, why your work is so important and why just something as simple as your and my podcast is important, stakeholder input is essential. As I mentioned, when a filing comes to work, we don't say this is the best possible filing we could have gotten. It's just, is this legal? Is it just and reasonable? Ha- Whether or not Order 2222 is a successful rulemaking or a historic rulemaking will be shaped by the compliance and implementation process. And so I think it's really important that stakeholders of all manners and, 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 and technological capabilities participate in that process so we get the most uh, uh, forward-reaching proposals from the states and regions.
2: Yeah, you know, when, when you talked about the difference in response, because I remember all the, the, the hullabaloo around <laughs> 841. I mean, that, 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 was, that was pretty wild, right? Um, uh, about six, seven years ago, I got asked to give a talk at the IEEE Power Engineering Society general meeting. Um, and the common refrain from a lot of the utility folks in that time was, this solar thing is, is hard for us to deal with. We have to put a stop to it. Now, part of my talk was on some of this data that we collect where I was talking about some some very detailed integration issues with, with how the individual properties would interact with the grid and things you could do to make that better and easier for the utilities so they wouldn't necessarily have issues. And And so I was talking about a lot of problems that didn't necessarily have a solution at the time. I didn't get invited back to talk again for five years um but the, when i got invited back the second time the attitude had changed it was solar is here to stay we're going to have to deal with it and what it sounds like to me is that we're now making that next step of solar is here to stay and it can be advantageous and and a a good thing in the market which is something that that we've been watching for a while we knew that when we got started 10 years ago when pecanstory got started the economics of individual technologies may or may not make sense, but the price curves were such that it was like, okay, at some point in the near distant future, this is going to make sense. And we're going to have to know how to, how to have all the information to, to properly integrate these things. So, so we've seen some of those same sort of attitude shifts that you're seeing, but we're typically seeing them from the distribution engineers, or at least I am, right? Those are the folks that I talk to on a regular basis. That's who we're seeing them for, those shifts from, right?
3: I completely agree with what you're seeing. We're seeing the same thing as well. And what we're seeing is the business case for clean energy has really come a long way. Mm -hmm. At its onset, uh, I think the growth and accelerated deployment of renewables and other clean energy technologies was driven largely by subsidies and mandates and public policies. And the focus was on environmental benefits Uh, in the face of increased consumer costs. Mm -hmm. Now, the focus going forward, I think the environmental benefits are a bonus at this point. There's a real economic and business case to be made for clean energy. As the cost of deployment continues to drop, as efficiencies continually are gained, uh, you're seeing more and more emphasis as well as consumer demand. And it's not just, Families or small businesses, Fortune 500 companies are demanding cleaner sources of energy. And so the momentum is all there. And again, it's not being driven by regulations or mandates, it's being driven by market forces and the genuine business case that is out there. So, to the extent that policy is needed to uh, match this trend in the future, it should not be about forcing outcomes. It should be about removing barriers so that these innovative technologies can continue to grow and thrive and be deployed.
2: Yeah, I, that that is awesome to hear. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you're seeing that. Um, uh, I will be watching uh, intently to see what happens uh, now that this is this is through. We'll see how see how these these rules. Um, uh, you know how this this rule change makes a makes an impact. Um uh, it'll be very curious to see the, the individual implementations, right? Because that, that's where that's where you could still possibly see some resistance. We're hoping not. We're gonna try and get as much word out as we can about the benefits that you can have to sort of overcome some of the, the immediate negative reactions, but but this is going to be really interesting to watch. You know, with the the pandemic there have been Shifts in um, energy usage. We've done um, uh, we've done blog posts. We've done we done a tremendous amount of data analysis on this. We've seen electric vehicle charging drop eighty percent in a day based on community orders. Right, like this is massive shifts in how people are using energy at more of a uh, uh, you know sort of national. Transmission level. What do you think the pandemic is doing for energy in general? Um, clean energy sort of technologies adoption is what? What's the impacts of all of
0: this?
3: You know, I think it's something that remains to be seen, and uh, I think you guys uh, would appreciate the approach that we at the commission took. Uh, a lot of people want to shape outcomes and narratives based on what they think make sense and what is happening, we decided uh, to do the research, to do the analysis. So uh, this past July, we convened a two-day technical conference at the commission to very much look at the current impact of the pandemic, as well as look to the future to see what challenges might arise in the energy space. We had representatives from all sectors of the energy economy and all stakeholders to get a sense on challenges ranging from what is this doing to demand and what generating forces are being impacted by a shift from you know industrial demand to more residential. A number of utilities were confronted with uh, you know uh, 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 shutdown, shut off, disconnect moratoriums. What did that mean for utility finance and? Could utilities potentially face credit downgrades? And would that impact access to capital in the future? And then there was a sense of public policy and what public policies might be necessary in coming out of the pandemic. A lot of the work in terms of specifics around the deployment of clean energy uh, technologies in the future... That's going to be determined by the markets and by Congress. At FERC, our foremost responsibility is oversuring the reliability and affordability of the grid. And so that's really our where our focus was. And we're seeing different opportunities and different challenges in different parts of the country. Um, bottom line, the pandemic has been challenging for everyone. But uh, I, for one, am very pleased with how folks across the energy landscape have stepped up. I've had a number of people comment to me that with all the stresses being posed by the pandemic, they can't imagine losing power on top of it. Yep. And so if nothing else, the pandemic has led to a greater appreciation for reliable electricity in America. And uh, and uh, that gives me great hope going forward that Americans, something they used to take for granted uh, they're now recognizing how important it is to their daily lives. yeah,
2: and, and you know <laughs> pandemic is challenging. That might be the, the
3: the understatement of
2: the of the podcast episode It's been so tough for our data operations and and you know, like like our data operations it's it's bad because we lose information to make decisions on in the future. but but grid operations, that's a life safety issue that is that is literally a life safety issue between hospitals and food refrigeration and things like that. This is this is critical, and so so the fact that these utility operators have been able to um, have been able to continue otherwise normal operation in spite of the challenges thrown uh, at them, which change daily between schools and all this. I mean, this has been this has been amazing from a from a transmission level and a, and a distribution level to to watch all of this. So. Um, that is my way of saying thank you, uh, everyone, for for doing that. So, um, another question we have is, you know, how did you get involved in in energy policy? Um, you're from Kentucky, right? So, so how did you how did you get here?
3: Yeah, that's a fabulous question. So, um, I my family moved to Kentucky in the uh, early 1990s from Buffalo, New York. And uh, uh, my, my then high school girlfriend, who's now my wife and the mother of my three kids, uh, her grandfather spent 41 years working for the Kentucky Association of Electric Cooperatives. Okay. And so when she and I uh, first started dating at the age of 16, um, I asked her grandfather about what he did and its significance. And over the course of years, uh, you know, he... Made it a point when we were driving around the Commonwealth to show me. Uh, he took particular gratitude in showing me when we crossed from Co-op territory into Muni territory, into <laughs> IOU territory. He was really, really proud of the his service territory, and so that just gave me some general familiarity uh, with energy policy. Uh, I then uh, went on to college, went on to graduate school. Uh, I was actually in school on September 11th, 2001, and uh, was really moved and, uh, and, and felt very strongly that I wanted to serve my country in some form or fashion. Uh, I had a friend of mine who finished a year earlier than me. He got a job in Washington from then Congressman Rob Portman who represented the Cincinnati area where we went to school. Uh, I had to come back and finish law school I got married that summer. I uh, had a job lined up uh, at a small insurance defense firm, $400 a month apartment, uh, and uh, my wife and I were prepared to uh, go about our lives living in, in northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area. When I came to visit my friend in Washington, I saw what he was doing and uh, I asked him, I said, "How do I how do I get involved in this? How do I work in this environment?" He said, "Neil, no one cares that you're a lawyer." You have no Capitol Hill experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congressman Portman is on this committee, this very important committee, the House Ways and Means Committee. The best we can do is get you an internship on this committee. It pays fourteen hundred dollars a month, <laughs> and uh, or your rent will be around you know sixteen fifty. <laughs> Everyone thought it was crazy. Making up in volume, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone thought it was crazy, but uh, uh, I really felt that I would be passionate about working in public policy and serving my country. Uh, And uh, initially, I actually thought I might work in healthcare policy. Uh, Both of my parents are in cancer research, have dedicated their lives to cancer research. Uh, And so while I myself uh, did not have the chemistry acumen to follow in their footsteps, um, I was familiar with the health policy landscape from seeing my parents' interactions over the years. And uh, I thought that would be where I go, where I went got an opportunity to work from, for a congresswoman from the Columbus, Ohio area, and healthcare just wasn't available. Uh, she had an opening for her energy policy advisor. Uh, energy wasn't a major issue for her. She wasn't on the energy committee, but she had a big uh, electric utility headquartered in her district. And so it really, uh, uh, to, to serve her well, I dug into the issues, started learning uh, about energy and electricity policy, uh, and had opportunities later in my career to pivot to healthcare and opted to stick with energy because I really felt, uh, it was interesting work. It was meaningful. Um, and I saw, uh, a lot of chance to, to, to do good. And, uh, you know, uh, got an opportunity to work for my hometown center, uh, who, uh, home state center who had the, uh, Good fortune of serving as the the Senate leader of his party, eventually the Senate majority leader. Uh, I was his energy policy advisor. And one of the roles that I played during the eight years that President Obama was in office, uh, Senator McConnell, my former boss was responsible for identifying the Republican candidates to serve on bipartisan boards and commissions like FERC. And so it was my responsibility as his, uh, energy advisor to to identify and vet and select candidates to serve at FERC because Senator McConnell was nominating these folks, uh, even though it's an independent agency and we never tried to interfere with the folks we put forward's work. Uh, I, always, I, I paid very close attention to the work of the commission and began to understand how critical a role FERC plays in the energy transition in our energy future. Uh, When a vacancy arose in 2016, there was actually someone else I wanted to put forward for the position. That person declined but suggested that I ought to do it. Uh, And uh, I ultimately convinced Senator McConnell to support my nomination. uh, And the rest is history. And uh, it's been a fascinating journey. Uh, I still have another eight months left on my term. I intend to finish it to build on the work, uh, that I've done, including on, uh, issues like for quarter 22, 22.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Um, any sort of final words for us today?
3: Uh, I just, uh, I love the work that you're doing. Um, you know, uh, travel has been more constrained during (laughs) the pandemic, but, uh, to the extent that I've explored opportunities the past few months to get out on the road, It's been with a focus on meeting with folks who are squarely in this space, looking at innovation and the intersection of innovation and policy. Uh, I got to go to Denver uh, in October and visit NREL. And what was so interesting to me in visiting the folks at NREL was how familiar they were with 2222, how excited they were about the potential opportunities there, and how their work combined with the policy actions we were taking at FERC just had really, really exciting possibilities. I have that same vibe and feeling here today. Uh, I've loved the opportunity to visit with you, to visit with Suzanne, to tour your facility and learn about the work that you guys are doing. And it just gives me a lot of excitement about future possibilities uh, to see the research, And work that you're doing how it may intersect with our removing these barriers uh could be very exciting
2: awesome well thank you so much for joining us we appreciate
0: your time
3: thank you for having
0: thanks for joining us for our maiden voyage of over our heads
1: if you enjoyed it please rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or visit theconstreet.org slash podcast for a full list of episodes. I'm Rachel Jenkins.
0: And I'm Colin Ruin. Thank you for joining us.